Today's guest on My Climate Journey is Michael Liebreich, the host of the podcast Cleaning Up, focused on leadership in the age of climate change. Michael was previously the CEO and founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance and has been involved with the organization for going on 20 years as he still serves as a senior contributor. Michael runs an advisory firm, Liebreich & Associates, focused on clean energy and sustainable development, and he's an advisor to the UK Board of Trade. All of this is just scratching the surface of Michael's background, which also includes having been a member of the British ski team and a participant in the 1992 Winter Olympics. Michael and I traverse a lot of ground, covering his background and how he came to focus on climate and clean energy topics, how he started new energy finance, and the decision to sell the business to Bloomberg, as well as the legacy that he created with the business. And then we cover a hit list of topics, including recent climate legislation in the U.S. and the EU, the topic of green protectionism, and Michael's five horsemen of big challenges the world faces as we try to decarbonize. I think we could have continued recording for another hour or two and still only scratched the surface of Michael's climate-related interests. We barely even mentioned hydrogen, which is one of the topics he's been spending the most time on recently. So for more from Michael, you'll need to check out his conversations on the Cleaning Up podcast. But before we start, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. With that, Michael, welcome to the show. Cody, it's a huge pleasure to be here. Michael, you have an incredibly diverse background, clearly an entrepreneur in terms of the areas you focus on. I don't know if you still identify as an entrepreneur, but you, the way I see it, you clearly are. I know you're now focused on deploying capital. You're doing high-level government advisement work all around the clean energy transition. But before we get to all that, I want to hear and learn a little bit about how you got there, how this problem became the problem that you wanted to focus your life around, because it didn't seem like it started that way based on what I see of your earliest background. So I saw that you grew up in West London. You studied fluid dynamics and thermodynamics and nuclear engineering at Cambridge. And then you are some kind of crazy world competitive level skier. So maybe walk us through kind of the early days of Michael Liebreich. You ask, am I still an entrepreneur? I mean, the answer is yes, but I'm really a bit of everything, as you've also pointed out. It's kind of like the Steve Jobs talked about, you can't join the dots looking forward. You can only join the dots looking back. So when I look back now, it's absolutely obvious that I was sort of predestined to do what I, exactly what I do today. Yeah, so family background, modest background. Father was a mechanic. I knew I wanted to go to university, so had no idea what to do. But what's a mechanic with a degree? Well, it's an engineer. So I studied engineering. And I happen to actually really love it. So it's really fun that the things that I was doing age 19, 20 was kind of drawing all of the boxes and arrows diagrams for heat pumps. And here I am, nearly 60, and I'm still in love with heat pumps. Looking back, that was definitely a big piece. But there is this other thread. My professional career was very standard. It was engineering and then management consulting, because a lot of engineers around then didn't go into engineering in the UK, at least. And then through various businesses, that was fairly standard, business school and so on. But the other thread is that I just was this kind of obsessive, keen skier. So both sides of my family are from Central Europe. Holocaust survivors, refugees, and my grandparents on my mother's side still lived in what was then Czechoslovakia when I was a kid. We used to go and visit. And my grandfather was this incredible skier. Even before the war, he'd been one of Czechoslovakia's top skiers. When I started to get into competition and I started to do well, my grandmother, when I would come back and say, hey, you know, I've just been on the podium at Europa Cup. And she'd be like, well, of course because her husband was this great skier, so why wouldn't I be? And I really pushed that to the extreme. I mean, I went to business school at Harvard, but after business school, suddenly my discipline, freestyle moguls, was an Olympic sport. And I was the British champion and I was, I'd done well at Europa Cup. So I kept going and I went all the way to the Olympics, 1992, whilst working for McKinsey and then became a climber and an outdoors person. So there were kind of more dots to join up there. Where does one train? Living in the UK, where were your main training grounds? Switzerland, France, Austria. 
I have skied and competed in Scotland, but the conditions were very variable. And actually, it cost as much to get to the Alps to train and ski as it cost to get to Scotland. So it's like, well, there's a no, that's, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, so I mainly in the Alps. But then once I was on the World Cup tour, skied Scandinavia, Canada, US, the White Circus. There's something about spending your winters in the mountains in heavy snow that I think also does attract a real interest in what's going on with our world around us. You'll have to listen to a recent episode we did on the pod with Will Steger, who's a polar explorer. He's led multiple dog sled expeditions to the poles. He's now dedicated his life to climate education and, and focusing people on that. So I don't know if there's a thread there where being up there kind of helped you recognize what's going on in our world, but surely connection with nature is part of it. For sure. Look, I'm not really a kind of hardcore environmentalist. I'm not a tree hugger. I don't come out of that tradition, but I'm an outdoorsman and mainly a mountains outdoorsman. So I went from skiing, did a bunch of high altitude mountain climbing. So Mount Elbrus in uh, the Russian Federation. I did a whole bunch in Central Latin America, some quite high mountains, Kilimanjaro in Africa. When you're up there, First, it's absolutely clear that these are fragile environments. You look down and you can see the pollution. And then if you do it long enough, you can also see the changes, the climate changes. You know, when I was a kid, we used to go skiing at Christmas in the Alps and there was snow and there was always snow and it never rained. It wasn't a thing to go at Christmas and to be rained on. Now we go to the Alps and you may or may not have snow at Christmas. And if you do, it's just as likely to snow as to stick or to snow more. And so this is in my lifetime, palpable differences in these fragile environments. So it's very hard, again, joining the dots, looking back, it was pretty obvious that I would become switched on to these threats to the environments that I loved. So let's talk about how you then made that transition professionally. So you said you were a management consultant at McKinsey. You'd had these other roles. I think you worked at the Arnaud Group in venture capital. And then in 2004, you started New Energy Finance. What said, oh, I'm going to now focus on journalism for the clean energy economy? How did that happen? Right. So there was a sort of extended period of epiphany. And I can't claim that it was just one thing. But I had this after I quit skiing in 93. I was still at McKinsey. I then went on to Associated Press. And I was having this kind of, I would call it a reasonably standard career in media then, because I went to Associated Press and, you know, did, started a whole bunch of businesses for them, helped to turn around the video news agency piece, which was really struggling. They just started it. It smelt of death within a year of being started. And I was the fool who came in to try and turn it around. And we did. The 90s in media was an interesting time for sure. It was. And I was very early on the internet just by chance. And as I was leaving McKinsey, McKinsey was starting to, the funny, the media partner at one point came into my office and said, Michael, I hear you have a thing called an internet on your computer. Could you download it onto mine? And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't kind of work that way. So, you know, that was what was going on then. But what happened then was the whole thing went completely hyperbolic, as you know, the whole dot-com boom, and then ultimately the bust. And I got sucked off into out into all these fascinating businesses, Group Arno, startups, I was investing. And then, of course, the whole thing bust. And that's really the beginning of the epiphany because I was really tired. So I was just traveling, trying to recharge my batteries and trying to figure out what to do next. I had really lost a lot of confidence as an entrepreneur. Nothing I had touched. Funny thing is, a lot of the businesses that I had founded or helped to found or supported or invested, they're actually really good businesses, but I didn't make any money off them. And nobody, it was a very traumatic period. So around 2002, 2003, I'm traveling a lot and I'm thinking about what to do. And I hadn't heard that Steve Jobs, I don't know if it's a commencement or a graduation speech, but just following what I was interested in. And what I was interested in all seemed to have energy at the heart. So I went climbing in Bolivia and they had just been literally a shooting fight between the Bolivian police and army about whether they should sell their natural gas to North America. And I then came back through Brazil and there were brownouts because the country was growing very fast and couldn't meet the energy, the electricity needs. And then there was this power cut. While I was in Brazil, the news was full of this huge power cut in the Northeast of the US. And there was a similar one in Europe, which is all to do with aging infrastructure. And then you had the climate change story, which was gathering pace. And I had the time to actually read the IPCC report. I think it was the third AR3 assessment report three at the time, but also to go back and read a lot of the underlying science. Then there was, of course, there was the second Gulf War. 
which is an energy war, quite clearly. It was like everything suddenly started to point. And it was like, whoa, I used to be really good at thermodynamics. I used to actually know some of the science behind the energy side of things. So all of these things started to just point in one direction. I always think the pop culture moment for climate change is Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, but that was 2006. So this is before any of that. That was six or seven. There was That's right, because there was Hurricane Katrina, but that was already, I think, 2005 or six, and the Inconvenient Truth. No, because I was thinking about this 2003, four, and if there was a single epiphany, it might have been, I started to organize these cross-country ski trips. It's very strange for a mogul skier, bump skier, but I took up cross-country skiing because I was getting fat, having retired from the British team and from all that kind of crazy skiing. And so I started to do a lot of running and some cross-country, and I entered this thing called the Engadin Ski Marathon. It's like a mass start race in Switzerland, beautiful thing to do. And I started inviting other people and we were collecting money for charity, which is how I ended up on the board and helping this colorectal medicine hospital and doing some of the other things you mentioned. But I went for a training ski up a side valley from a beautiful village called Pontresina. And there was a sign and it said something like 1811. And I thought, oh, well, that must be the altitude, 1811 meters, 1,800. And I went a bit further and it said 1835. And yeah, we were climbing. Maybe it was the altitude. And then it said 1878. And then it said 1910. And I suddenly realized this was the year when the glacier reached to those points, right? That's what they were doing is memorializing that glacier, which was receding. And I got all the way to the end, and this was 2003 or 2004. And it was miles and miles of cross country to get to where the glacier had receded over that period of under 200 years. And I thought, holy moly, this is fast. I mean, we all know we're at the end of an ice age and the glaciers are receding and so on. But this to me was like- And this was bottoms up? This was from the bottom going upward? Is that correct? From the valley up, just passing these signs and passing these signs for an hour or more than an hour. And, and then just thinking, this stuff is not theoretical. This is coming after environments that I love, right? And it may be too late for some of them. That was probably- the kind of, if I ever had any doubts about the sector I want to work in, then they were gone. That was it. Well, the personal insight there is super helpful. And it's, to me, it just shows the importance of getting outside, experiencing the world and seeing what may come of it from that, which I think is a great takeaway. Why don't you then talk about what it was like starting this media company? You had a wild ride for five years or so as an independent company, and then you eventually sold it to Bloomberg. How did it really get going? I would like to think that I kind of came back from my epiphany trip and I knew exactly the business model and I knew the pricing and I knew exactly who I would hire. It wasn't like that at all. You got to remember this was also still the period post.com. So it was almost like there was a sort of a few of us who were deeply scarred and traumatized, but we knew that we had to pick ourselves up and do something. So while you were doing this, just so you know, at that time, I was at the New York Times on the digital team, kind of managing the New York Times, going through this whole digital transition in 2003, 2004, 2005. So definitely understand that it was a completely chaotic time for you to be starting a media, an online media company kind of post.com boom. So explain like, okay, you maybe didn't have the whole business model figured out or everything. So what did those early days look like? Yeah. So had I known you back at that point, I probably would have asked for a job, but I didn't. What happened was that I really just sort of followed what I was interested in. And at the time, there was lots of talk actually about hydrogen and fuel cells. So I started to research you know, who was investing in it, what were they doing? And there was no good source of information. So these technologies were all, if you went to some of the data sets, there was like venture source, then they would be kind of electrical equipment, not elsewhere specified. And they didn't differentiate between a fuel cell stack or balance of plant or a fuel cell car. It was all just kind of like, whoa, they didn't know anything. So I started to create data sets and I'm a very, very left brain data driven person. So I started to create data sets and get insight and understand more about what was going on. And then I did this with a few like-minded people. So there was a guy that I had worked with at Group Arno, Boscot Idinolu, who's now a substantial batteries investor in his own right. And we started to create these data sets and think about raising a fund. But my background was more media. Boskurt was more of the venture capital type. But as we went and talked to people and they asked, well, why do you think you'd be good investors? We'd say, well, we've got this amazing tool in the database. And they all said, wow, that's amazing. 
can we subscribe to that? And so I thought, okay, well, you've got to listen to what you're being told. We were clearly a data and information business. We hooked up with some other similar dot-com flameouts. Nobody got a salary. We worked for two years. I hired a ton of interns. We were highly intern powered at the beginning. So we had people, you know, hammering in data. But the quid pro quo was they were having input into like the branding of the business. They were learning a ton. We were having a lot of fun. We were in Notting Hill Gate. And the services kind of emerged based on what didn't work. So trying to sign people up for paid newsletters, there just wasn't enough revenue. And the database, the problem with selling a database and marketing a database is nobody knows what's in it and it's too painful for them to find out. I was just about to ask, what kind of data were you cataloging? What was in this data repository? Right. So what we did was really interesting. So we would scrape around the internet or the news that we were getting from wherever, and we would do what I would call extracting the DNA from each news story. So there'd be an investment in, I don't know, plug power. And we're like, okay, who invested? What was the value of the round? Who was the lawyer? Was there a debt piece? Maybe not in the plug power, but if it was a wind farm or whatever. And what we created was a really elegant database architecture where each of these kind of objects had its own structure and fields, but they were all relational. They related to each other so that if you clicked on plug power, you would find everybody who had invested in that round, you would find all their rounds. But if you clicked on an investor, you would then find what else they had invested in. And if you clicked on a, a lawyer on the deal, you could go through to what else they... And it, So it was a bit like x-raying a crystal from all these different directions. And you could very quickly get a sense of who was doing what. This was sort of coming online during what ultimately became this sort of clean tech 1.0 boom cycle, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we started building these data sets around 2004. And I very quickly realized that hydrogen and fuel cells was not enough to build a business in. I mean, it was at the time I thought, well, maybe it's premature. You probably know that now I've got my very fixed views on which bits of hydrogen will work and which bits won't. But I just thought at the time, I've just had this huge flame out in the dot-com time. You know, at one point I was worth $30 million and then I was worth $300,000. And then one time I had lots of friends and then I had none. I can't afford another 20 years wasting my time on anything. So I went over to Renewables Conference in New York called Renewable Energy Finance Forum. And I spotted that the wind industry lawyers were the only people wearing really good suits. And I came back and I said, hey, team, we're doing wind as well. And they said, okay, wind, what about solar? I'm like, yeah, we'll do solar too. Well, what about biofuels? Yeah, we'll do. So we ended up doing everything. That was one of the key pivots to go from hydrogen and fuel cells to all clean technologies. 2004, we did that. And it was a bit early, a bit before the real clean tech 1.0 bubble, our timing was just very, very lucky. Amazing. And then in 2009, the acquisition happened with Bloomberg. How did that come together? Well, so let me just, there's one other pivot along the way, which was we built the data sets and it's very hard to market data sets. We built newsletters, very low price point. You can't make money on that. But in 2007, we started to do insight services. So what will the cost of solar power be in year X? Or where's the pinch point on the value chain, on the supply chain? Or what's the difference between what Germany's doing and what the US is doing? Suddenly people are like, okay, I know that Michael's team has got all this data, but now he's kind of pre-chewing it and pre-digesting it. And I can actually use that in an investment committee meeting or with my board. And so suddenly the price point went from $1,000 for a newsletter and $5,000 for a database to $50,000, $250,000, half a million dollars for the really big subscribers. And then you're off to the races. From then to selling the business, 2007, the pivot to Insight, we sold the business in 2009 and we sold it well. That was not a distress sale. That was a good sale. And we sold it to Bloomberg. And then Bloomberg, still today, Bloomberg New Energy Finance is its own thing in Bloomberg. It didn't get sort of fully sucked into the Bloomberg machine. It is its own business. Is that the right way to think about it? That was something we fought very hard for at the time of the acquisition because Bloomberg, the Bloomberg terminal is something that sits on an individual's desk, right? It's an individual productivity tool in a sense, whether you're a trader or an equities analyst and so on. Whereas what we were doing was actually informing teams so ours was more strategic 
rather than individual. So it would be the strategy team at a utility, or it might be the M&A team at an investment bank that were working on a transaction. And so we were delivering via the web to teams. And if we'd have taken all of that and stuck it into people's individual desktops, into their terminals, then I think we would have lost all the customers, all the momentum that we had. So I fought very hard, or educated and worked very hard to make sure that it was retained also because of the spirit of the team that we had built. We were actually like saving the planet and doing all these exciting things. Just to be kind of fully absorbed instantly would have been pretty disastrous. It became Bloomberg New Energy Finance, now BNF or Bloomberg NEF. And now it's always available through the terminal, but there was a proper transition and you can still use it in the team environment. Were there any other vertically oriented flavors at Bloomberg or was there something about the clean energy transition that made it unique for them strategically to want to have this capability set? So there were no other verticals at that time. There was something called Bloomberg Research, but that was more like a sort of sell-side analysis, but done by Bloomberg people, a bull case on different equities and sectors, but it was generic. We were the only vertical. And I think that the reason why Dan Doktoroff, who actually I had on my podcast on cleaning up about a year ago. He really liked it because first, it was obvious which way the world was going, that energy was going to go to clean energy, carbon markets at the time were going to be this huge thing. And so the idea that you could kind of acquire a leading position, the leading seat around the table was attractive. And I think the other thing that was interesting about us was that we were this teeny weeny little company, and yet we were pulling out half a million dollar tickets from one or two of the big oil companies from the DOE in the US. These were people that Bloomberg was not able to sell a terminal to, or would maybe sell one or two terminals. But there were we coming in, and nobody had ever heard of us, and yet we were pulling out these big tickets. And there was something that was intriguing, I think, for the Bloomberg folks about what is it they're doing? And is this something that we could do more of? Is this something that scales to other sectors? And I think it's fair to say for a few years, there was something of a feeling within Bloomberg that they had overpaid for this tiny, scrappy little team. You know, it was very small. The multiples when we sold were very high. But I think when you look at it now, it's like, oh my God, the fit is just so, so, so good. Not just as a service, but also, dare I say it, I'm not going to speak for him, but Mike Bloomberg and his work with the UN, and it's just so on brand in, in every way and on brand, on product. It's been a really good acquisition, I think, for them. And Michael, you also went from that acquisition and ended up running the division for many years. But then since then, have then advanced your career into work in the public sector, as well as now running your own podcast and media company and running your own growth equity firm. So let's follow the 20 teens and sort of how your career moved after that chapter was coming to a conclusion. So I ran Bloomberg NEF for three more years. So I sold uh, more than that. I sold in 2009, the end of 2009. So I ran it. I was CEO of that bit until 2014. And then I became kind of executive chairman half time until 2017. And then I left my executive roles. And it was kind of interesting because I had always built the business knowing that I would sell it. I don't know how many entrepreneurs do this, but I'd always had one eye or half an eye or a, one of your 17 eyes as an entrepreneur on the handover to an eventual acquirer. I was pretty sure it would not be an IPO. And therefore, for all that you want to say, hey, we're new energy finance, we're better than everybody else. They're all stupid and they're all big and slumbering and idiotic. And well, I never did that because I knew I'd end up working for one of them because I wanted not just to sell it and sell it well, but actually to hand it over well. So if I ever, as an entrepreneur, start something else, and somebody wants to buy it, and they go to Bloomberg and say, well, what's he like as a selling executive, as a selling entrepreneur? And if they say, oh, he was terrible, he was out the door instantly, he bad-mouthed us, he broke his confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera, that's no good, right? As an entrepreneur, you have to take the full life cycle of your investment, of your startup is starting it, but it's also selling it and handing it over. One startup complete, team complete, products complete, integrated into the acquirer's systems. And when I look at my position that I'm able to be an advisor to the UN, or I'm on the board of Transport for London for a while, or now board of trade, it's because I'm trading off my background, having built that thing. It did not blow up, right? It went from strength to strength. People can still look at it, and it's still the dominant information provider in the sector. That is to my credit. Now, it still helped. That's right. 
I mean, it's a legacy play, right? It's not, oh, he made a bunch of money on this thing that doesn't exist anymore. It's no, he created something that has ongoing value. Cody, it's yes and. You know, I did make a bunch of money. I won't say no, but the legacy play, I think, is really important. It was designed in and it was very explicitly, very explicitly worked on making sure that my team started to glom onto Bloomberg from day one. Even though, of course, there are frictions and they had this kind of weird email system, which I could never master. But getting the team to glom on so that I could then go half time. My number two at the time, John Moore now runs it. It's now grown enormously. I have no idea what revenue or notional revenue it is, but it's 300 plus people. The value, it's clearly of unicorn type value within the orbit of what it does within Bloomberg. But I stepped away other than I still write for Bloomberg four times a year. So I have my blog or my, we used to call it the VIP briefing rather pompously. Now it's just Michael's blog, but that's four times a year. And I really try to sort of change the agenda of the sector. That's my last sort of legacy with Bloomberg is four times a year, I can say, wait, everybody, the next big thing is not so much hydrogen, it's the electrification of heat. And then everybody can run around agreeing or disagreeing, but we are still driving the agenda there. I love it. Let's talk about now what you're working on actively today. What I managed to do through that process of after selling New Energy Finance, then sharing it and, and then beyond, I managed to keep the network. I was becoming just very well connected. In fact, my first non-exec or my first sort of public role, even while I was still running Bloomberg New Energy Finance, was the Board of Transport for London. And I went to Dan Doctoroff. This is before Mike Bloomberg came back from being mayor and said, look, I've got an opportunity to be on the Transit Authority of London. I'd like to do it. How does that play? And he was like, you absolutely must do it. Enormously supportive. It just felt like I kept growing and growing the network. So then the question is, how do you use that? How do you monetize that? What do you do? Similar to how I started New Energy Finance with no real plan, I was writing, I was advising the podcast was an accident of fate. COVID during the pandemic, I've been doing some paid speaking. They never told me this when I was at high school or at university, that you can actually earn good money doing paid speaking. And so suddenly I'm putting through my kids through their school by doing paid speaking engagements with banks and infrastructure funds and some big conferences. And suddenly in COVID that went away. And so what I did there was to keep some momentum around that. They were fantastic occasions when you go and you speak at a bank and you meet their clients, you meet their executives, you maybe meet some politicians. That's how I was growing my network. So then the podcast, what happened was that I was finding myself, I had all these incoming opportunities as well. Just like you and Jason, you suddenly find yourself in the middle of this ecosystem and people are coming to you with investment opportunities, startups. And I had not enough money and absolutely no time to invest in them all. I was building an angel portfolio. So about two years ago, I said, okay, wait, let's structure this. And I now do three things. It's very clear. I've got a media business, which is my podcast, my writing, mainly for Bloomberg, some other bits and pieces, and my paid speaking, which has come back. That's Libra. The podcast for listeners is cleaning up. Make sure you listen to it. It's what you've done, hundred and. 25, 150-ish episodes, I think, right? You've covered a, a wide range of topics. That's right. It's Cleaning Up. I shall now turn the rest of this podcast into an extended plug for Cleaning Up. You can find the website, cleaningup.live. I think that the main point of differentiation is actually not the topics so much as the people. I mean, we've had everybody from Tony Blair to Jigar Shah, who you obviously know extremely well, to Alex Honnold, who climbed... El Cap without a rope, right? He has a solar foundation and I got him on the show. We've had Dan Jurgen, who wrote the classic books on the energy sector. We had the woman who glued herself to the Shell headquarters and the guy who's in charge of the Shell scenarios. We had Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org and one of the great sort of protesters. I don't know how many times he'd been arrested, but also Tony Abbott, the self-avowed climate, I don't use the word denier, but you know, super skeptic, former prime minister of Australia, Prince Albert of Monaco, one of the most recent. So, you know, it's just this huge diversity of people. So that, that's over in the media business. It's sponsored, sponsored, by the way, by somebody you probably also know, Capricorn Investment Group, who are behind so many great companies that you've had on your show. Sure. So podcast, speaking, writing, that's media. Angel Portfolio, which is now about 20 companies, 
Most of it is startup. Some of it is a bit later stage. If anybody's concerned that I promote them on one, on the media business and invest in it, absolutely, you betcha. That's part of the business model. But I do disclose. There's, I've got a, a disclosure page on my website, Liebreich.com. You can find my register of interest. I'm very transparent about that. And then the third piece is advisory. And we will raise a fund just like yourselves. When the timing is right and we get the right constellation, the right people around the table, we'll raise a fund. It will be probably a later stage growth fund, not a deep tech VC fund. But we advise some startups and we also advise some hedge funds, banks, infrastructure funds. So we advise sell side and buy side. The startups want money, but they also want this kind of growth hacking because me and also the other two people that I do that with, Henry Lawson and Henrietta Jowett, we're all business builders. We're not deep tech. We've got a science background, but really we're business builders. So we've stood in the shoes of a startup entrepreneur who needs to, I don't know, hire a sales team in Latin America or register some patents or fire somebody who's being difficult. So we can do all that coaching. We do that. We do the growth hacking with the entrepreneurs and then also advise the buy side, the people with the money. A lot of family offers, so many people coming into this space, they don't know what they really want to be investing in. They talk to us and what I would say, how it fits together is I talked about the network, but it's also the worldview. I've developed a very, very, I think, integrated, internally consistent view of how the net zero transformation plays out. What works, what doesn't work, who's going to win, who isn't, more or less. And if people disagree with it, that's cool because I can learn and whatever. But if they agree, then they're either going to hit the media business or the advisory business or perhaps come in via one of the startups, co-investing or whatever. Hey, everyone. I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. Well, Michael, I find it fascinating because at MCJ, we say our three pillars are content, capital and community with kind of community leading the charge across all of those. And I'm hearing you say quite similarly, content, capital and network with sort of network being the way you all have managed to you personally and people around you have managed to drive community, which is being this connective tissue in the industry as it's transitioning. There's something generalizable from this because there may be investors, there may be some hedge funds that are incredibly secretive about what they do, but we do see this model of people investing, but also needing a media presence, needing a brand, needing to attract community, needing a network so that they can actually kind of growth hack their portfolio companies. We do see it, I think, not just in climate. It may be particularly valuable in climate because climate goes across everything. It's like biochemistry to infrastructure. Bringing it all together is hard. The way I view it is we're in this moment of transition. So getting cross-pollinization of ideas and breaking down kind of vertical industry silos is incredibly valuable right now at this moment in time. Learning how someone with a, a biofermentation background leans into the chemistry space, for example, is that silo-busting nature that works through community and through network. I'll give you a funny story about joining the dots looking back. When I was at McKinsey, I got sent off. I was kind of the foreign legion because I kept on going skiing. So when I came back, I had to accept whatever horrible study in some out of town location. And I got sent to Southern Germany to work on the German soft cheese industry, right? These are like brie style cheeses, also cream cheeses and hard cheese and whatever. And I spent nearly a year doing that. And there's no way at the time that I would have thought that that would be useful in any way. It was interesting, right? But you know what? It's bioprocessing. 
you're using enzymes, you're using fungi, you're processing a natural product. In this case, you know, it's grass, the cows eat the grass, the cows make the milk, and you're trying to produce a product which is high quality and standardized across the year. And then you're trying to get it out into a distribution system. Well, guess what? It's biofuels. Not exactly, but it, there's a lot of learning. Now, never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that it would be useful, but you know what? It was. I love it. I think it's a unique skill to be able to pull disparate dots and connect them together to see how to leverage them. And I think that's where you've been able to be that dot connector for people that helps you as you continue to be a significant nexus point in this space. That's exactly how I see it. So it's nice to hear it sort of mirrored back. I could, you know, the stories, I mean, I was working on perestroika in Russia. And now, of course, you've got Russia sadly producing some of the most appalling news, but it also ricocheting around the energy sector. And I've been there, lived there. I've met some of the people who are horrendously doing or supporting some of these things. So I do have these kind of weird dots in my background that I can draw on and hopefully learn from just a little bit faster than the next person. So I have done thermodynamics and I have done living in Russia and I have done the cheese industry and I have done it just, and I've done a lot of mechanical engineering. And here's another dot, just extraordinary good fortune. My first job, I was calculating learning curves just by chance in the 1980s. I did learning curves for things like printed circuit boards, but also rock quarrying and oil rigs. And so I became just passionately, not passionately a believer in, but just convinced. And I got a very strong analytic background in learning curves. So then you come into the people worrying about solar and what does it do and what is it? And I'm the guy that says, I don't know all the ins and I don't know quantum dot and whether it's going to be cadmium telluride or I do know it's going to get cheaper on this curve forever. And, you know, to me, the takeaway from this portion of our conversation is when I was in my 20s, I had a lot of angst. I'm now in my mid 40s. So that was a while ago. But I had a lot of angst about being a generalist. It's like, oh, do I need to pick a path and go really deep? Frankly, I kind of didn't. I would call myself quite the generalist. And I think the takeaway is for folks who feel that they have lots of interests, being a generalist is okay if you can figure out how to harness that as a superpower, like lean into that. Don't shun it because you can use it in a very positive way. I don't know if I should say yes and no, or perhaps the caveat is a different one. Use the word angst. I mean, I would actually even take it further and talk about mental health because I found this process of being a generalist really, really hard, particularly in the context that I left Cambridge having done extremely well in engineering. I was the only person who didn't go into a graduate training program because I went skiing. Now, everybody is like, wow, he's a ski bum. How cool. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, I've probably blown my entire career. And a few other times and leaving McKinsey, I did not have the job with the AP lined up. That was angst. The dot com, when that blew up and I had years when I didn't know what I was going to do, it's really stressful because the problem with being the generalist is you're not the best at marketing. You're not the best at finance. You're not the best biochemist. You're not the best cost engineer, whatever it is, you're not the best. And so you seeing these other people coming past you and doing really well, it is that Steve Jobs point. It will make sense. It will come back together. And maybe the generalists, as long as you can kind of keep slugging, maybe it's later in your career that you can accelerate. Some people are lucky they become entrepreneurs in their 20s, but most don't. Mostly it's in the 40s and the 50s when suddenly you're like, hang on a second, I've got the character, I've got the network, I understand maybe I've even got a little bit of a financial cushion, I've got the resilience, and I can put this together. Maybe we get to accelerate. Please tell me it's so. Michael, I, uh, we could continue on this conversation of generalists. I appreciate it. What I want to do for the last little bit is dive into a couple topics related to the clean energy transition, just to hear your thoughts, recognizing you are not an expert in any one of these, but that you are able to speak across many of them. We talked a little bit, you brought up Russia, so let's start there. We just finished the winter for the most part of 2022-2023. There was a lot of conversation heading into the winter season about what was going to happen in Europe related to energy because of natural gas, Russia, Ukraine. What ended up happening? What did the winter in Europe look like from an energy perspective? So largely, I was going to say we dodged a bullet, but I think that's an inappropriate thing to say in the context. I mean, this is just a horrendous, horrendous situation. It's an unprovoked, barbaric invasion. But we had a mild winter. And that really helped because we were not ready. And I would say that a lot of our leaders 
first of all, it was absurd the extent to which they had become dependent on Russian oil, gas, coal, fertilizer, foodstuffs, etc. But then even when that war started, when Russia invaded, we had these conversations about fracking or nuclear or hydrogen as a solution to this incredibly urgent problem. And urgent not just for, clearly, Ukraine and for Europe, but really around the world. There are so many countries that were importing foodstuffs and the energy and foodstuff and fertilizer price spike is tragic around the world. It took far too long, I think, for our leaders to get to grips with it. We started really only last summer. We've done a bunch of stuff, rerouting energy supplies, etc. But we were really lucky because of the mild winter. Really, really lucky. So we have to not be lucky this coming winter, right? We've got, you know, whatever it is, six, seven months to get ready, and we have to be ready, and we have to purposefully eliminate our dependence on or maintain our independence from particularly Russian pipeline gas. Everything else can kind of be rerouted. How does that happen? Does that mean an investment into fracking and gas infrastructure in Europe? Does that mean incredibly fast deployments of renewables and storage? What do you see happening over the next six months? Fracking in Europe wouldn't be big enough or fast enough to make any difference. But LNG terminals, what we need to do is, and they are, there's, I think Germany now has got five LNG terminals. And so that's a big chunk of the answer. I mean, a big chunk. It's not more than half, but it is a chunk. And we have to do it in such a way that it doesn't lock us into fossil fuels forever. But, you know, what we're seeing is a rewiring. So those Russian energy supplies, which were coming into Europe, they will ultimately end up going east and south and costing more to distribute and taking hopefully decades to build that infrastructure. And then the LNG that doesn't go into Japan and India and Korea and so on, South Korea, you know, that will come into Europe. So that's kind of what's happening on the fossil side. And we're French-shoring. You can buy from, suddenly you can buy a bit more from Norway or even North Africa, rather than from Russia or from, I think people are reassessing the risk of other geographies as well. But the other thing that we have seen is this incredible acceleration of the clean energy sector. So energy efficiency and the rapid acceleration in renewables, in heat pumps. I mean, heat pumps are going, they're growing at sort of 35, 36% year on year in Europe. I think actually, no, that was the IEA figures are, I think, 36% worldwide. So we're now really seeing heat pumps go. And that's probably the best single energy efficiency technology that we've got is actually the heat pump. So that's really great to see. Isn't it amazing to think about it that way, though? So it's converting the sources of energy from Russian to more localized sources and accessing them. So basically rewiring the supply chains for gas, as you mentioned. But it's also reducing dependency on gas, of course, and doing that by leveraging technologies and rolling out technologies fast. What are you seeing that are beyond just the imperative need to do it. Is there a policy environment that is helping deployment of heat pumps and other efficiency-related technologies quickly across the EU? Definitely. So there'd been a lot of policies that were sort of working their way through the sausage machine in Brussels. So they had the fit for 55. So their target is a 55% reduction in emissions between 1990 and 2030. But then after the Russian invasion and the sort of period of running around, not really addressing how dramatic it is. In fact, I would say understanding perhaps how dramatic, but still thinking, well, surely we'll be allowed to use some Russian gas and some Russian oil. And it took them until the summer to say, no, the correct number is zero. But then they have a new package of policies called Repower EU. And that's taking even further the the imperative of 55. But you know, what's really thrown an absolute curveball at all of that is, of course, your US Inflation Reduction Act. So now everybody's running around going, how do we respond to that in the UK? How do we respond in the EU? How do we respond in Germany? And there's something kind of refreshing about the worries that the US is moving too fast. There's something also slightly worrying about it in that some of those IRA subsidies, supports are so generous that they become kind of distortive. They risk us wasting a load of money on sort of stupid stuff that doesn't go anywhere. And of course, there's a protectionism concern. Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard the phrase green protectionism coming out of Europe with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act. Maybe unpack that a little bit for us, just so listeners who haven't heard this point of view can understand it a little bit more. So I'm a long time fan of free trade 
particularly in clean energy or sustainable or climate-related technologies and services. And I think that's also vitally important. And it was pushing that and promoting it back in sort of 2009. And amazingly, we nearly got an environmental goods agreement in 2016. And then I think the Trump election victory put the kibosh on that and China pulled out of the negotiations. But the point about free trade is it pushes the costs down. And if you want cheap solar, if you think about where does the silicon come from? The silicon might come from the US, it might get refined in the US or in Europe. The wafers may get made in China, turned into panels in, I don't know, Abu Dhabi. And all of this drives down the cost. Same with electric vehicles. You might have spodumene being mined in Australia that's turned into the lithium carbonate and turned into a battery that goes into a Tesla that rolls off the factory in California or Texas or wherever. And we need that. This idea that we're going to be able to home shore, that we're going to be able to capture the whole value chain in one geography, we will push up the cost of the transition and we will slow it down. Now, we have to deal with over-dependence on China, right? I'm also a defense hawk, right? So don't get me wrong. But we have to, if in doubt, we need to make sure that we preserve free trade. And of course, when you look at the provisions of the IRA, that the jobs have to be in the US, the factories have to be in the US, that is so core to the sort of Biden philosophy of you know good jobs, union jobs, which I understand is the political constituency out of which he comes, but there is a danger there. And if everybody around the world does the same thing and says, nope, you've got to have the jobs have to be in the UK, the jobs have to be in Germany, the jobs have, and of course, China is not going to just sit there. India has a whole thing that has gone live in India called the Production Linked Incentive Scheme, right? There's a, it's happening, right? Yeah. And local content rules tend to push up the cost. They sometimes work, but they often don't work in terms of creating domestic industries. I mean, I'm curious, not that you're a super policy expert, but at the highest of levels, in order to get something through a local policy environment, you have to make it good for that locale. And yet we're at this tragedy of the commons issue where if everyone did that, it would halt progress. And so how do you think we should, we as a collective, we should be finding that balance? I think the answer is that we're going to muddle through, if I'm honest trying to over-design it and saying we need unfettered free trade in anything that in any way is related to green is going to just get allergic reactions, even if it's just around dual-use technologies, digitization or whatever. But equally, trying to grab the whole value chain and say, well, we must mine rare earths in Australia, process them in Australia, turn them into magnets in Australia, and hell, we must build wind turbines. That's not going to work either. I think it's challenging. What I would say is that competition between the blocks. It's not obvious to me. You know, we've had 27 COP meetings at the UNFCCC COP meetings. We've had endless coordination and cooperation. And I don't want to say there's not much to see from it because there is. There's the Paris Agreement and there's some very good cooperation that's come out of that. But we got the space race. The US put a man on the moon because of the space race, not because of the space cooperation. And so it's this kind of I want to say muddling through is probably being disparaging. We will negotiate, we will problem solve, hopefully we'll keep the lines of communications and cooperation open, but equally we'll compete ruthlessly where possible and try to capture the value add from these technologies and these emerging sectors. One thing that I'm seeing that does make me a bit optimistic with respect to this protectionist potential problem at least in the U.S. right now, is these policies, because they're incentive-based policies, right? They're not punitive, they're incentive-based. They're creating tax credits when a production pipeline meets a certain criteria around domestication of the materials or the production. What we're starting to see is an incredible amount of investment into particularly in the battery space, recycling technologies. So even if the battery was originally sourced and mined and created in China, if it's then brought into the U.S. and then recycled, it is considered U.S. supply chain at that point. That circularity should be considered a positive development for all, I would think, because it's requiring less mining out of the ground. Yeah, let me unpack that because there's two different pieces. One is, is recycling important? Yes. The idea that you sort of bring something into the US, recycling, and then re-export it, and that you get these credits, I would be very careful with that. I'd be very careful. So tonight, I've got a, an episode of my podcast with Marco Alvera. He's taking hydrogen from the US, capturing CO2 in the US, combining them into methane, putting them on the ship, and bringing them to Europe. The fundamental driver of the economics is that to get one kilo of hydrogen in Europe, 
he has to create two kilos over in the US. So that's two times $3 in the US. And then he gets a credit for capturing the carbon as well, which simply goes across the Atlantic and gets emitted, right? So it's enormously distortive. I don't know what the number is, but it may be $1,000 per ton of carbon CO2 avoided. And I wonder if I was a policymaker in the US, I'd be going, wait a minute, why are we giving what is effectively $6 per kilo in Europe? You have $6 of tax break in the US and more for the carbon capture. Why are we doing that? And during the first biofuels bulge, 2007, 2008, there was something called splash and dash. And what happened was in Europe, there was a mandate to use biofuels. And in the US, there was a mandate to blend. So what you did was you grew something in the Caribbean, brought it into the US to blend, and then shipped it to Europe. It was just these enormously effective at hoovering up subsidies but I would like to think that that will go away. I mean, that is not solving the problem. That is regulatory arbitrage. I want to just come back to the recycling point because there are a few things. I'm generally very optimistic. We've bent the curve enormously on emissions. I mean, most people, even listening to this, may not know that global emissions have been flat for a decade or more. Right? Actual energy and land use emissions overall, we always hear these news stories, emissions keep growing, they don't. They're actually flat. We're at peak emissions, not peak concentrations, right? Those keep going up. Right. And not peak reduction, right? But flat. We need to get down to zero, net zero, right? If you want to get something from something that's growing to something that's zero, you first got to go through a peak or a plateau. So we're there. So I'm very optimistic. And I know I can see tons of opportunities. You know, your guests, time and again, impressive. And we'll be able to bend the curve further. There are about five things I worry about, though. I worry about transmission, the speed with which societies can approve and build transmission. I worry about cost of capital, particularly in the developing world. I worry about regulatory capture. There are just these things that I think are potential showstoppers. And I worry about rare earth metals or minerals, because although there's plenty of them in the world, the supply chains are not there. And so recycling and that circularity piece is incredibly important because, you know, yes, we can mine more, hopefully, not hopefully, we must mine justly. You know, there's no point in the developed world being all virtuous and net zero and blah, 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 but we've trashed Papua New Guinea and Bolivia and it's just ghastly in other parts of the world. Absolutely not. So we've got to do it in a just way. And, and of course, in China, all those, we've got slave labor in the supply chain in Xinjiang and that's got to be eliminated. But recycling and energy efficiency actually are our superpowers because they reduce the scale of all of the problems that you think. Anytime you think, sheesh, this is actually going to be really, really hard, why wouldn't you look over there and recycle or do energy efficiency and reduce the scale of that problem? I want to hit the rest of these concern items that you laid out. You said rare earth metals was one and recycling fits into that. You mentioned transmission being sort of one of your big concern items. Unpack that for us. Right. So I did a really interesting conference I helped to create on behalf of a Swedish bank called Swedbank. And we had three panels and I helped to populate them and I moderated a couple of them. And broadly speaking, the first one was how do we get lots more clean energy, clean electricity? And the answer was, yeah, there's lots of things we can do. Lots of wind, lots of solar. Geothermal, I think, is having a moment. And these projects take about five years. The third panel was, oh, hard to abate sectors, right? How are we going to do, I don't know, shipping and aviation fuels and fertilizer and steel? And do you know what? It was amazing. This was only a year or so ago, but there were loads of projects and they take about five years. That was great. But the panel in the middle was how do we actually get the clean electricity and energy to where it needs to be and the transmission? And do you know what? It takes 10 to 15 years. So you've got five years to produce supply, five years to stimulate demand, and 10 to 15 years to move the stuff around. And that's not good enough. And that's everywhere. That's everywhere in the world. I assume you include storage in this transmission problem set? Yes. I mean, it's funny because I don't jump to storage as the solution for variability. I think the issue is resilience. And when you broaden to the question of resilience, you realize that you can start with demand response and the software solutions, which are really cheap. You can look at all the batteries that are going to be in our vehicles, which again, are going to be cheap to use for resilience. You can kind of bite off pieces of the resilience problem. You really only end up with a kind of 
two or three days and longer problem. And also the kind of national security, the strategic stockpile type problems. So it's not just storage, but yes, that's one of my five horsemen of the apocalypse. I'd listed four. The fifth is variability and how we deal with it. Well, resilience rather. But the transmission one, you know, what we really need to be doing is we need to be thinking about these transmission corridors that for sure are going to be needed. And we need to be pre-permitting and we need to be getting the state to play a role because private money isn't going to do five years or seven years of consultations and prep work for an interconnection or a clean energy corridor with merchant risk. We just don't have the pools of capital for that and risk capital for that. That's a role where I think governments, policymakers need to really kind of step in. And the whole process is, I don't want to say broken, but it's focused on kind of speeding up a 15-year process. We really need to be thinking about what does the three-year process look like? I mean, it's broken enough in the U.S. that it got completely slashed out of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? It was left on the floor of the bill. And part of that, I think, was a distrust that permitting reform would actually accelerate clean energy and wouldn't be a pawn of increased oil and gas permitting. How do you manage that? Remember, though, that you've got federal permitting for oil and gas pipelines, but not for electricity. So I'm not across the in and outs of beltway politics, but... One thing, just bringing electricity into the same planning frameworks as exist for oil and gas would be a big thing. But I'd say one of my five horsemen or five horse people, to be correct, is regulatory capture. And that could be bribery and corruption around the world. It could be, well, I mean, I don't know what buying senators and Congress people, it's not called bribery, but it seems bizarrely close to an outsider. It's called dark money and it's pretty close. <laughs> but you know, if you were to give me one Christmas wish, it would be actually probably campaign finance reform in the US. The one single thing that would accelerate the net zero transition is probably uh, campaign reform, campaign finance reform. Yeah, that is such an under-talked-about topic in the climate space, but I would tend to agree with you. Let's talk about your next horse person, capital in the developing world into clean energy. Right, and that one's something I've been working on for well over a decade. I was asked to go to Mexico, another great sort of join-the-dots-backwards situation, as the guest of Carlos Slim, who was at the time the wealthiest person in the world, to work with a group within the UN who are trying to get energy integrated into the UN's, the Millennium Development Goals, the ones we had from the year 2000 to 2015, did not include energy. And they were trying to sort of rectify that. And this was around, I don't know, 2000 and uh, probably eight, nine. And I went over there. That eventually became sustainable energy for all. And eventually we managed to get that to be SDG 7 under the brilliant leadership of Kande Yumkeller, Rachel Kite, some other people that if you haven't had on your show, you definitely should. Now, Damilola Ogunbi runs Sustainable Energy for All, but you've got SDG 7. And that's all about renewables and energy efficiency and energy access. Vitally important, vitally, vitally important. The problem is for all that solar and wind, and it's going to be geothermal and batteries, EVs, but for all that they get cheap in places where capital forms and where interest rates are moderate, if you've got a 15% interest rate in Malawi or 12% in Ghana or whatever the rates are, that is not a cheap source of electricity. And we see this enormous bias where these clean energy projects are being built. Yes, in the developing world, but if you look at it, a big chunk of that is China and Chile and places that I don't think you and I would really agree at you know, developing. They're certainly not slow developing. You go to the slow developing countries and there is almost none going on. So we've got these blended finance solutions, the World Bank, the Africa Development Bank, the Asia Development Bank. But you know, we will have won this thing when Jamie Dimon, when it's JP Morgan that is hoovering money into clean energy in Africa and not just some very good, well-meaning I don't want to use the word pseudo-bankers, but there you go, I've said it. The development banks play a vital role, but their balance sheets are minuscule compared to the trillions and trillions that really need to flow. During COP26, I had a meeting with Larry Fink, and it was like, the guy's biggest problem, he's got $10 trillion. How do you put that into clean energy solutions? It's like, well, figure out how to get a big chunk of that into these very rapidly growing countries where this stuff is just not happening or not happening 
anywhere near fast enough. For listeners, I highly encourage you to go back to our archives and listen to the episode we recorded with Emily McAteer of Odyssey Energy Solutions, who is actively helping to drive more of this capital via a software platform currently into Nigeria, but also looking at multiple other developing market economies as well. And it's so interesting to hear how the role that software and financial marketplaces can play in accelerating that. We need to share some potential guests because we had an extraordinary entrepreneur working out of Africa, Anna Hajduka, and she has spent the better part of, I don't know, eight or nine years pushing for the opening up and the development of power pools. So this is the ability, so you can sell some offtake via a PPA to a buyer, but if they have a poor credit rating and they go bankrupt, you need physically and from a market perspective to be able to sell to somebody else. That's your only protection. And that was not possible in a lot of the African countries, between African countries. And she has just done brilliant work. And it's now finally this capital starting to flow, 50 million, 80 million, 120 million, and it's starting to happen. There are the success stories. There really are. But we've got to get those stories out, shared through communities like ours, and more of it happening. Fantastic. And let's hit your, I think it's your last horse person. Resilience. And resilience, I think, is such a big one. Right now, we're having a debate in the UK because we're about to have a lot more offshore wind. As in, we've got 12 gigawatts of offshore wind. The goal is to have 50 gigawatts by 2030. I think we may get to 40, 45. And the problem with the issue with wind is that you get these kind of two-week periods, what the Germans call the Dunkelflaute, the dark doldrums. And then the question is, what do you do when most of the year you're absolutely fine, but then in those periods you're not? And again, a guest on Cleaning Up on my podcast, Professor Sir Chris Llewellyn-Smith has done a load of work on deep salt cavern hydrogen storage. So if you're looking for a technological solution to resilience, then it's going to be all of the things we've talked about. Another one, I have a personal angel investment in a company called Xlinks, which is an undersea cable from Morocco bringing very cheap wind and solar, a little bit of batteries to smooth it out, and then bringing that all the way around the European coastline offshore and into the UK to provide dispatchable clean energy. So there's a kind of electricity market solution. So, I mean, this is back to my saying, it's not all about storage. There's some different technologies, there's some market developments, but we're going to be in a deeply electrified future. Yeah, as you know, I'm not one of these people who thinks hydrogen is going to do everything up and down the stack, cars, buses, scooters, heating, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to go electric. So we really, really have to keep the lights on. We really have to, and not just the lights on, because now the electricity is charging the police cars and it's keeping the old people warm so that they don't get into hypothermia in the winters or they don't get heat shock in the summers. We have got to keep the electricity flowing. So we are not investing enough in those resilience solutions. And the resilience thinking, what is the policy framework? If you have a really bad year, I'm talking about a once in 40 years bad year for wind, is it okay if lots of your economy shuts down for three months? No, it's really not. So what are we going to do? I mean, you think about, we started the conversation talking about transitioning to digital and the internet. And I remember those early days when all of a sudden the Wi-Fi is out in the office and everyone just has to go home because there's nothing to do. When you fast forward that to, oh, now our entire world is powered by electrons. And if the electrons aren't happening right now, what happens? It certainly can be incredibly impactful. Think about it. You won't even be able to go home, right? Because you won't be able to charge any vehicles. We might be able to go home once, but that's it. But you won't even be able to go to the coffee place because the payment system isn't going to work or the coffee machine, which is electrical, isn't going to work. We are going to be so electrical. Is Okay, it's fine. Put all your eggs in one basket, but then guard the basket. And we also have to have a conversation in that context about nuclear, largely just because it's going to be a vector of diversification of risk. The fact that you have some power stations like this and some like that is a good thing. We haven't dived into nuclear. We haven't dived into hydrogen. We could go on for another hour. I think we probably are at the point where we should call it for now. Maybe we'll schedule another one of these. I encourage people to go to the Cleaning Up podcast. Michael has a wealth of episodes covering many of these topics. Any other places you want to point our listeners to follow up on your work, Michael? 
So first of all, Cody, bless you for not diving into hydrogen. You know, I just seem to spend most of my life in the, the hydrogen cage fight because I've been a vocal proponent of being sensible and only doing the things we really have to with hydrogen. I think, look, there's the podcast, the show notes of the podcast, the pieces I write for Bloomberg, every single one takes me two, three weeks to write. It is really the distillation of my thoughts on there's nuclear, there's trade, there's finance, there's resilience. There's a whole bunch of this. So I would like to think those have a shelf life of more than fish and chip wrappers, more than the daily newspapers, if such a thing still exists. And some of them are worth reading. I wrote one in 2015 about inclusion, about the how we will move faster and better on this journey if executives no longer look like you and me, Cody, if they actually are diverse across gender and minorities and so on. So some of these things are real classics. Seek them out. I would love for people to do that. And let me know what you think. Well, Michael, I so appreciate you taking the time to come on. Hopefully our listeners have learned more about your podcast, your points of view, your writings, learned a little bit about what it's like to navigate your career, trying out what's interesting to you and expanding on it from there and feeling inspired that there are pathways for all of us to harness the things that we're interested in and turn them into productive uses. So thanks for your time today. Absolutely. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. <laughs>